This is the Marked Podcast from LifeWay Women. We're your hosts, Mary Margaret West and Elizabeth Hindman. Each episode, we'll talk about what God's doing, how He has and is marking each of us. Sometimes that will be through interviews, and sometimes we'll have conversations around the table. We're so glad you joined us today. So this episode is going to look a little bit different than our typical ones, and we're going to throw in what we're going to call some bonus episodes. I know. Doesn't that sound fun? I know. I love it. I love a bonus episode. I do too. Well, that's what this is today. And so, um, you know, we are, Elizabeth and I are coming from Lifeway Women here in Nashville. And Mm -hmm. so um, what better to, to give you in a bonus episode than some Bible study content? Right. I mean, we have a ton of Bible study content. I know. It's kind of what we do. Available to us. Yes. So what we're doing is we're going to start doing bonus episodes every so often. They won't interfere with the normal podcast schedule, yep. um, but they are going to be audio versions of some of our Bible studies, and they're just going to be previews. So we're just going to play one session, so then you can kind of get a feel for what the session is like, what yep. the Bible study is like, and maybe you'll want to go and get that one and do the whole study, yeah. or maybe it'll just be a nice little encouragement for your day. Um, So we're going to start with Beloved Disciple by Beth Moore. Mm, Classic. Yes, it is from the classic Beth Moore Library. And we recently redid it, so it has a whole new look. Mm -hmm. But we wanted to kind of start with Beth, with Beloved Disciple, because it's such a requested topic. Yeah, it's John. I mean, who doesn't want to know more about John? John. Yeah. The disciple. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The beloved one. The beloved one. That's him. (laughs) So what this is, is it is the audio from the video sessions that are included in the Bible study. So when we take the Bible study, you know, a lot of our Bible studies have videos Mm -hmm. components. And then this is the audio portion of that. You may or may not know that the audio is available online for purchase. Yeah. And so I know you all listen to podcasts because you're here. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's easier to listen to a podcast because you can do that while you're driving or while you're walking or running. Rather than sitting on your sofa, whatever, whatever, whatever you know, Um, but that way you can listen to it instead of sitting down and watching a video, which is sometimes easier. Sometimes you would rather see it on video. But we wanted to offer this as um As a freebie for you, this is session one of Beloved Disciple by Beth Moore. A verse was going through my mind just a couple of minutes ago, Psalm 8110 that says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Amen. (laughs) And I had to grin to myself. I've been away from home for about a week now and my husband and I are dog crazy. We've got three dogs, that is more than anybody needs, and they take over our entire house, but we are absolutely nuts over them. And one of them is about a waist-high German short-hair pointer named Beanie. And I was picturing that precious thing up on the car door on the inside with her paws on the handles with her head out the window. And if you know anything about bird dogs, their lips simply just need some kind of puckering string or something. They just all lay out like this. Their lips do not fit together. And so as she sticks her head out the window and we drive, her mouth fills up just like a windsock. I wish I could just, I wish I had a picture to show you, but I mean, it's completely full of air. And if she is not the most comical thing you have ever seen. And every time I look at her, I think the same thing, Lord, boy, could you fill that mouth? (laughs) Wouldn't it be something if we would open our mouths like that? 
just have the windsock before God. That he would satisfy something within our souls, maybe something of a need, a desire we've never even articulated we had. I want you to turn with me, if you would please, to Mark chapter 3. We're going to talk about the call of the apostles when he divided them out from among many followers, many disciples at this point, if we were using that term loosely, and now he's going to pull out the twelve from among them. I think it's so strange that he did it according to his will and according to his own pleasure, and that Judas was even among them. He knew exactly what he was getting a hold of when he chose every single one of them. Think of the peculiarity of that. Mark chapter 3. I want to begin reading at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. Do you see that? He wanted Judas. Called him knowing. And they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Everybody say sons of thunder. thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Wouldn't you hate for that to be the one little phrase that goes down in holy writ for all of time about your life? There, you've got it. That will not be us. Yet in all our frailties and all our failures, as he has called us, he knew exactly what he was getting into when he called. And that's what this particular session is about. Not only their calling, but your calling. And I wonder, are you absolutely convinced that you have one? Because you do. That will be an important part of this 10-week journey. And we're a week into it, discovering That God has a calling on your life that he literally put forth before the foundation of the world and chose you for this generation to fulfill it. And these were the first 12. Appointed and called forward. And two he labeled sons of thunder. We just happened to be studying one of those. Scholars are divided as to whether or not sons of thunder referred to their pre-personalities when they were in their natural personalities before God began to transform them through the work of the Holy Spirit through the book of Acts. Or whether it was indeed talking about after they had come to such a transformation, what in the world do sons of thunder mean? We're not going to find that out with absolute certainty, but I hope today you and I will somehow be able to find some kind of penetration into what that particular label meant. A lot of scholars believe that it was because they were a little, a tad bit overzealous about judgment. I want you to turn with me now, if you would please, to Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. Don't you know that it's these kinds of moments they look back on with absolute humiliation? Don't you know this is one of those moments in heaven that they kind of hit their head and go, what in the world was I thinking? Amen. And God loves us anyway and chooses us knowing. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. 
When the disciples, James and John, there's our guys, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? I mean, I want you to think on that for just a moment. That is a pretty heavy-duty statement. Now, you'll be studying it a little bit later in our written work, but I want you to look ahead for a minute so that we can try to discern what this label, Sons of Thunder, means. But I want you to think about the intent. Do you want us to call fire down from heaven and burn them to death? An entire village. Can you even imagine... Now, I want you to just try to picture what the face of Christ must have looked like as it says then, Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Now, the King James tells us a little bit more than that. And before that really disturbs you that one version may have more and the other version does not, it wasn't just a number of men that decided that they wanted this in the Bible and they didn't want this. Actually, there is just some argument over what are the most reliable original manuscripts. That's what the problem is. One school of thinking, a very thinking, brilliant men stick with one and another group stick with another. And that's why you've got translations that have different pieces that may be missing and appearing in another. But the King James Version adds something right here that is absolutely critical and I want to read it to you. It says, but he turned, speaking of Christ, and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I cannot think of anything more profound for us to hear at this point in our journey than that Christ said, I did not come to destroy men's lives. Now, you and I have been talking about searching out what the desires of our hearts really are. And God's going to do something through that search. But I want you to understand something. Sometimes we're just absolutely terrified to surrender our lives to Christ because somewhere deep inside, we don't want to articulate this to anyone, but we are scared to death he might destroy them. Would anybody agree with that? Just somewhere deep inside that it's all about sacrifice. All about just knowing that it's delayed gratification, everything's about heaven, nothing about here, give up everything you ever loved, everything you ever thought was dear, and just get through it the best you can. We've been called to martyrs' lives, and then when we get to heaven, we'll have reward there. I'm going to tell you something. The biggest sacrifice we will ever make is the call of God over our lives. To sacrifice that would be to sacrifice everything. That is going to be, when all is said and done, your heart's desire and my heart's desire. When we really get down to what's beneath all of that, God knows exactly what will satisfy your heart and be the adventure that you've lived all of your life to find. He knew that of these as well. So we've got a couple of guys there going, don't you want to let us do this? We'll do this for you. You just say the word, we'll call down the fire. What on earth gave James and John the kind of audacity to think that in the wildest stretch of the imagination, Christ would have them do that? Well, let's look in John chapter 2 and just see if we can find any clue. I want to suggest to you that very early in their ministries with Christ, and mind you, at this point... Many scholars believe that John was only an adolescent. So I want you to think about the kinds of things that would have really rung his bell. 
Look at John chapter 2. Now, you'll notice that the very first miracle, and you'll be studying this later in your uh, workbook, but you'll see with me that the first miracle is when Christ changed the water into wine. But I want you to see what happened then. It says in verse 12, John chapter 2, verse 12, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want you to look at those words for a moment. I want you to imagine that while they were at that wedding, I don't know how much young men think of weddings. But now this was the Harrison Ford moment, amen? (laughs) This was the kind of thing that a young man by the name of John might have looked at and said, now this is the kind of thing I signed up for. This is my party. Let me come in and turn everything upside down. Give me a whip and let me come turning over the tables. I think early on he read into that and thought, now that is exactly the calling I want. I just wonder. I want you to look at the introduction to your study today. And let's just begin to fill this in, but not without thinking through. See, you and I have already observed that this is not going to be a Bible study about simply filling in the blanks. Could everybody say amen? Amen. Although you are going to get to fill in your blanks tonight, you'll be very, very glad to know. But this is a Bible study about meeting the transforming Christ and the greatest adventure of our lives. If you'll notice with me in that very first paragraph, it says this. Sometimes we also may have the desire to take our whips and turn over the tables in our worlds. Jot that down and think it through for a second. I wonder if even in the last week, anyone listening has had such a desire. Anybody just wish that God would give them a little permission to take a whip and go to swinging it. Amen? Whip that place into shape. And I gave you a couple of examples to think through. Like in our children's schools. Anybody know that feeling? In our communities. And in our churches. Anybody just here recently wanted to just come in with a whip into your church and just turn the place upside down? Something in us that just goes, let this be the scene. Let me have the Harrison Ford moment. Amen? That's exactly what John was signing up for. That's what he wanted to do. The problem is, and I've suggested this to you in your notes, we've got to be so careful what we rationalize by Scripture. And we're going to make a series of points, and the first several are going to answer our temptations about whipping our own worlds into shape. If you haven't felt it recently, you'll feel it soon. That overwhelming thing that it's got to be your calling to go whip something into shape. We're going to take down a number of points to help us on our way to make a decision that would be wise instead of finding license from what we think we find in Scripture. Number one is this. We're very wise to remember that Christ could not sin in his zeal or anger. You and I, on the other hand, are highly challenged. Would somebody say amen? You and I are highly challenged not to sin in our anger. And I'm not going to have you turn to Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. I want you to go elsewhere. But I do want to tell you what it says. It says 
That we want to be so careful not to sin in our anger and not to even let the sun go down on our anger. What that's suggesting to us is the immediacy that our anger be dealt with with God. It says, and don't give a foothold to the devil. Which to me, in proximity of where it is said in Scripture, says to me one of the biggest footholds he ever gets over us has to do with our anger. Now here's the deal. Some of you listening have really good reasons to be mad. This is not about whether or not we have a reason to rage. Some of you in this place literally could rage for the next 10 years if it was just by permission. If you just went out and took a vote and people said, listen, you could do it till the cows come home and nobody's going to blame you. It's not that we don't have reasons to rage. It is that it is so entirely dangerous, not only to others, but to ourselves. And it gives the enemy such a foothold. I want you to see something in Colossians chapter 3. You and I have already been talking about the desires of our hearts. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I want you to notice a couple of things. When it says, set your minds on, that is a word that also means your passions and your affections. I love how it also says, when Christ who is your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, now notice that after a paragraph of telling us what to do with our affections and our desires to keep them safe, in other words, where they're in a place that they can be expressed because you and I were created to be passionate. We were created by a passionate God to be a passionate people. Feelings are not wrong. But when they're sifted through the priority of Christ, they are safe in their release. But I want you to notice something that happens here in the perfection of Scripture. He then begins to list, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, two different kinds of unhealthy substitute passions. He goes on to say, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, hop down to verse 8, and it says, But you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and so forth. I want you to look carefully, because what he's telling us is that you and I have a need to be passionate. It is in us. It was birthed in us. All of us in our souls have need to dance down the streets of Jerusalem. It is in us. We were created to have hearts that feel and hearts that respond and hearts that seek and hearts that find. That was meant for us. But here's the deal. You and I are so serious about passion, and I would mean this no matter who was listening to this, unbelievers or believers. We will be so desperate to feel passion that we will find it one way or the other. And that's exactly what those lists are telling us. And we'll either turn, if we do not begin to find the way to express our passions in safe and godly ways by setting them first of all upon him, they will turn and twist into the other distortions. That's what sexual immorality and lust is all about. It's a substitute way to find some kind of passion. But for our purposes today, what I want you to see is so is anger and rage. Do you realize that some people are so desperate simply to feel passionate about something that if they can't feel one thing, they'll just settle for rage? 
Understand with me today that rage and anger are highly motivational. Amen? Very motivational. There are people that use it to get going every day, but it's extremely destructive. I think that Scripture suggests in a couple of different ways that James and John very likely may have had a bit of misguided anger and zeal. We'll see that even forward as we go through the lesson together. But I want you to notice something with me. I was thinking about a hymn the other day. I want to read it to you. I love the old hymns, and this one was just coming from my lips, and I was thinking in terms of this particular lesson, and then I went on to rewrite the hymn according to the point that we're making today. But I want you to hear it as it truly was written uh, first before you hear it as I have rewritten it. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. But these words came to me, and I believe they could be common in the church. My rage has found a spewing place in my religion's creed. I trust the ever-living one to justify my need. I need a lot of arguments. I need some lips to bleed. It is enough that God gets mad. I've licensed for my need. What I fear is that the church can be a place that attracts, and I mean when I say the church, I'm just talking about the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about denominations. I'm just talking about the church. It can become a very attractive place for raging people. Because there is no end to all the opportunity to get mad. Amen? Some of you know, you have experienced that. You're the one holding back, trying to grab hold of that whip, just going, God, let me, let me. Amen? When until we can go and speak the truth in love, we've not been appointed to anything. He said, by your love, they will know that you are my disciples. I want you to look back at John chapter 2 and I want to show you something that I believe becomes key for us in measuring whether or not our hearts are right when we have some kind of righteous indignation over something. Number two is this. Let's go ahead and fill it in. Godly indignation is measured by the absence of self. Godly indignation, true godly indignation, is measured by the absence of self. Let's just go ahead and get it out of the way and say there is a very big difference between true righteous indignation and self-righteous indignation. I want you to see a, a clue here that is in this scene. It says then, if you'll look with me in verse 16, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Notice the words, my father's house. See, Christ did not go in fighting his own battle there. He went in with all selfishness aside. He went in in his father's behalf and he turned the place upside down. I think it draws for us a very important principle. How much is my own point and my own need involved here? That when I feel like I've got a righteous indignation over over something that is critical, what is my safeguard there? Am I crucified to my own flesh in the matter? This wasn't about Christ to him. He went in because he said, look what you are doing to my father's house. That will be a safeguard to us so many times because Christ called us to carry the cross, not a cause. 
So often we will substitute carrying the cross for carrying a cause. He said, you lay down your rights in that area. See if you're crucified in that matter. See how much of self is involved in that matter. That will be a great safeguard for us every single time. And something that occurred to me, and I I wrote it down in my notes, a me gospel, and I'm talking about an M-E, a me gospel can have a scary way of turning into a mean gospel. Somebody say amen. I read something the other day that broke my heart. I've read numerous accounts of this exact kind of thing, but it just pierced my heart because I love the church. And I mean, I'm going to tell you something. I am not cynical. And I have done a lot of traveling. I've met a lot of believers. And I'm going to tell you something. The real thing is out there and flourishing. I am very happy to tell you. So we must never think, never get cynical about it. I'm telling you, authenticity is rampant through the church. But we've also got some other very real problems. And I was reading an account of someone who, had been, if I told you who it was, you'd be very familiar with the name. Someone every single one of us would, would know who had been placed in a government position, appointed to it. And when he was, because he was known to be a Christian, the Christian community applauded. They were so excited they did not know what to do. We have a godly man and a place of influence. Hallelujah. But because he chose to fight a few battles and win instead of all of them and lose them all. Do you understand what I'm saying? The same Christian community that applauded him began screaming, crucify him. Do you know where he is right now? He still loves God. But he said, I will never go back to church. What a sad statement for the church that we have an expectation of others that we would not even be able to deliver ourselves, can understand the position they're in, that they need to delicately work in that particular place of influence and win a few battles instead of losing them all. But we think we know how it's got to be. And our righteous indignation, when it all comes down, is self-righteous indignation. Am I crucified to myself in the matter? Am I carrying the cross or am I carrying a cause? I want to go further with you. Point number three is this. God looks upon the heart beneath the action. God looks upon the heart beneath the action. We can even have a wrong heart about a right issue and find ourselves disciplined by God. I want to repeat that again. We can even have a wrong heart about a right issue and find ourselves disciplined by God. I'm going to tell you something. This has happened to me. I, want, I just want to see you lift your hands. Anybody else? Where really, actually, and technically, you were right. You had a biblical basis for it. You had the Word of God behind you, but God smacked you to Pretoria. Amen? It's happened to me. It's happened to me. Because I was not bowed down over the matter and submitted over the matter because I was standing up on my feet, throwing my head back, being arrogant about the matter. The mighty arm of God did come down, and when it came down, it smacked me with it. And boy, can that happen. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 24 with me. When I first wrote the outline, I didn't have these scriptures. They came to me later. God made sure I didn't miss them. And boy, did I go back and pencil them in. Proverbs 24, 17 and 18. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. 
or the Lord will see and disapprove and turn His wrath away from Him. Let that fall on you a second. Those are dangerous words that say, even when your enemy, even when the enemy of the faith falls, you and I have got to be very careful not to gloat. Because what that that gloating is showing is arrogance and pride, as if we had something to do with righteousness. Amen? And he's saying, you know what? You'll want to be very, very careful not to gloat. Or I could turn my wrath away from him. And to me, the unspoken part of that could be, I'd be scared to death that it would somehow wind my way. Amen? Now look with me further. We're talking about James and John and the others, but particularly the sons of thunder. When you do a little research in the days to come about the material God was working with, there are many wonderful things about John, but you see evidences about him to suggest he is full of arrogance and pride. So we'd look at his life and we'd ask ourselves this question, why in the world did God call him? What in the world did he see in him that was apostle material? I want you to look with me now to Psalm 29. You're right there in Proverbs. Back up a book to Psalm 29. God revealed these verses to me the other day in reference to this point about the sons of thunder. I was using these during my quiet time one morning and John came to my mind and I want to see if it makes a point to you. Psalm 29 verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. There's our key word. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. Now verse 7. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. Now putting it all together, and I'm just wanting you to picture something. I'm not talking deep doctrine here. I'm just talking, picturing something visually. It's talking about the voice of God being like lightning. Now, I'm suggesting that he was calling his apostles to be the thunder of that lightning. What I want to suggest to you is maybe the name had reference to both their before and thereafter. But what God was up to in the lives of James and John is to make them thunder from a different lightning. Let that fall on you for just a moment. That he would change the source. Some, some verses came to me as I just jotted them down when I was thinking of the fact that God gives us a different source, thunder of a different lightning, lover of a different breed, temple of a different mortar, torrents of a different sea. That the origin changes, what we draw from changes. I want you to think for just a moment about Christ at the well with a Samaritan woman. Wasn't his point to her, oh, if you would only learn to draw out of a different well. So we have one bucket, that's our lives. But out of habit, even after we become believers, even after we begin serving, out of pure habit, we still continue to take that same bucket and draw down into the soul man part of us, into the best we can muster, and it's a noble effort. We're not even realizing we're doing it. But we're dipping down into the same old well, pulling it up. But what we're doing differently now is we then ask God to bless it. When he's going, I want to do better than that. I didn't just ask you to live for Jesus. I ask you to let Jesus live through you. I am asking you to take the bucket of your life and choose a different well. 
Drop the bucket down in the well of the Holy Spirit. Bring forth the living water from a different origin. And I believe he was calling John and James to be thunder, all right. But thunder of a very different kind of lightning. I want you to go with me to number four. Paradoxically, we receive our calling as one kind of person but can only fulfill it as another. Boy, that's the frustration, isn't it? We receive it as one kind of person. They received it as thunder of an old lightning. But boy, did he have something else in mind for them. And I want you to notice the words that I just want to apply to the same truth. In verse 2 of chapter 18 of Matthew, he called a little child and had him stand among them. Now, these are his disciples. And he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you, would everybody say that word, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to stare at those words for a moment, then I want you to look at your listening guide. Because I've given you some blanks there. I don't want you to fill those in for now. You're going, not another time. But I want you to think on those and meditate on those. Because so often we are filled with frustration because we believe God gave us a vision. We believe that God placed a calling on our lives and we're going, where is the fruition of that? And God may be saying to us, I'm just suggesting he may be, I know it was true of me, unless you blank. You cannot blank. What would he fill in for you? As I think what he would be filling in for me, you see our callings demand that we are willing to change. The word disciple means learner. It means someone who continues to be teachable. The moment we cease being teachable and changeable, we have not ceased being believers, but we have ceased being disciples. We've got to be willing to change because he's building the character. I've asked my dear friends, Travis and Angela, to help me with something on this platform for a moment. I'm going to ask them to come on up, and they're going to be setting up here for a moment. I have rewritten yet another hymn. Now, what I'm going to try to assure you is I will not make a habit of this. But I thought this was the day for it. Now, when I was growing up, the most common invitational hymn at the end of one of our services was Just As I Am. Many of you may be familiar with it. But the problem is this. Very often we think because we came just as we are, we shall stay just as we are. Amen? Amen. So what I've done is I've just written a few different words to the same tune, and I've asked my, my dear friends, I want you to know them. This is, this is Teresa and Angela Cottrell. They are my worship leaders. Did I say Teresa? What did I say? Teresa. Okay. These are my good friends, Travis and Angela Cottrell. (laughs) Such good friends that I call him Teresa. (laughs) Just because I helped you with your hair tonight. (laughs) He said, I'm going to kill you. Let me tell you something. I so owe him. You guys have no idea. They they lead my praise and worship team on the Living Proof Live uh, events that we have on the road. And they are dear friends and family to me. But let me tell you, he has gotten me more times than I will ever get him. But I'm going to step aside and let them sing this to you. Now, what I've asked Teresa, of course, Travis is what I mean. What I've asked Travis to do is I've asked him to play God, which he has always wanted to do. (laughs) And I have asked my dear friend Angela to play me and to play you. So please listen carefully. 
Just as I am is how I will stay Since after all did Christ not pay And when he called me I was This way he must not mind So why should I? Just as you are I paid your debt so you'd not stay the soul I met. You have a call. Did you forget? Cooperate and change or else. All right, already I guess I don't care. A little adjustment here and there. But don't do more than I can bear Or folks I know at work will stare My stubborn child, I have the plan I issue the call, then build the man You won't want to forfeit the future I planned it's good, but not only good, it's grand. Just as I am, perhaps I won't stay. I wasn't that happy anyway. But if you're a potter who's looking for clay, my spouse, could use a strong look his way. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I just wonder if that sounds familiar to anybody. I want you to look at point number five with me as we go on. Though preparation is important, Christ seems to have an affinity for on-the-job training. Amen? Let me say that again. Though preparation is important, Christ seems to have an affinity for on-the-job training. Thankfully, we don't have to wait to serve to some capacity. In fact, I have found that God loves to place us in a position that is just a little bit out of our reach. Every single time, you can know that you may be in the right place if it is beyond what you can do. Amen? Because that is where the all-surpassing power of God is shown. And it's of Him and not of us. One of the most important things we're going to get out of this study is that I desire to see every single member of the body of Christ receive their calling and know the satisfaction of producing much fruit. That is your calling. I want you to see with me as we're thinking about being slightly beyond our capabilities. I want you to think about those that you really have in your head are being used greatly of God. Now, I'm thinking of all sorts of people that you would just say, now that person has it together. What I want to suggest to you is that that person has spent half their life being scared to death of what God has called them to do. They are just more willing to follow God than follow their fear. That is extremely important. I was thinking about vocations and my vocational beginnings. My very first job was at the Nut Hut. 
And it is exactly what you think it is. It is selling nuts. Not only that, here's the really horrible part of it. I was fired from the nut hut. I must be the only person who ever lost a job at the nut hut. And then because several years later I was teaching uh, Christian uh, exercise classes at my church and they didn't do training in at that time within the churches. They didn't really know how to do that, didn't have a setup for it. So they sent me out to learn my training out in the world and then come back in with Christian music. So I went to a place and got a job at the Venus de Milo. Now, I want you to picture this, if you would, please. This was an exercise and weight loss center. These precious women came in and we literally had to measure them. And it would just break my heart to see some of the low self-esteem of some of the people that came in. And I was taught by my mother, just like some of you have been taught, to try to find anything you can say nice and say it. And so I had this precious one in front of me. Now, I must at this point be about 22 years old. And so I say to her, I'm seeing that she is just really downtrodden. Her face is cast down. I can see that she's embarrassed to death, and I'm embarrassed to death putting the tape measure around her. So I look at her, and I think there's got to be something good to say. And it was in the middle of winter, and she had a very dark tan. And so I said to her, but you know what? Your tan is beautiful. And she said, oh, honey, that's not a tan. I have a liver condition. And the only thing I could think of to say is, well, it looks great on you. I mean, I just want you to understand that this is what God had to work with. This is what God had to work with. want to see something with you before we conclude, and then I want to share part of my testimony with you. Look back at Mark chapter 3. See a very important part of discovering our calling. This is how it's going to happen, and I don't believe... This will change. I think this is going to be the rule of thumb for any of us to really discover what our purpose is on this planet. Back to Mark chapter 3, exactly where we began. I want you to notice in verse 14 of Mark 3, it says, He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out. Now look at the responsibilities given there. What does he say is his responsibility? He does the sending out. What was their responsibility? Come and be with me, he says. I don't believe that will ever change. That they might be with him and that he might send them out. This is my promise to you based on any understanding I have. And I have so much to learn and so far to go. But if I understand anything about the calling so far, and I have met many people who are serving in the fullness of what God has given them for this particular season, and I believe they would all agree with this, that if we would simply worry about being with Him, if we make our hearts desire, Lord Jesus, I just want to know You. I want to know you. I want you to give me eyes to see you. I want you to give me ears to hear you. I want you to circumcise my heart to love you. I make you this promise. If we ask God to make that the most important desire and seeking of our lives, we will have a head-on collision with our callings. You will never make the priority of your life to love him and know him and then get to heaven and say, oops, I missed my calling. Your calling is in his heart. As we seek that heart, we're going to find that calling. What can so often happen in our Christian communities is that we can get caught up in seeking our calling and our ministry rather than seeking his heart. He's after the purity of that heart. 
You just be with me, he says, and then I will send you out. I want to tell you something that happened to me last year that I really have still not gotten over. I had a conference in Hot Springs, Arkansas, only about 45 minutes from my hometown in Arkadelphia. And I had planned in advance. I'd so wanted to see ladies that I had not seen in many, many years that I knew were still in that particular town. So I had made plans to have my staff at Living Proof Ministries help me put on a reception for them. So we sent some invitations ahead and basically to my old church and then to anyone else that I had known, my relatives back there and some of my friends. And I also extended the invitation to anyone who might be part of one of the Bible studies there in that small town. So we set it up for that afternoon before the conference started that night and I really could not wait. And all the way there, and you know when it's been a long time, I I haven't lived there in 20 some odd years, it's been so long since I'd seen those people, and wouldn't you know, my plane was delayed, and I had to dress in the minivan on the way from the airport to the reception, and I just prayed, I said, thank you God, I was trying to pray by faith, but something happened that stirred my heart so deeply that it took me days to get over it. I had a woman come up to me that I knew quite well, and she had her arm through another young woman, and she said, Beth, there is someone special I want you to meet. And I said, who would that be? And I was already starting to take this young woman's hands, and she said, this is so-and-so. She said, she teaches your Bible studies at your old church. I'm going to tell you something. As I grabbed those precious hands and looked into that face, I don't know how long I left her standing there, Because my mind went all the way back as long as I could remember. I mean, I was one of those cradle roll babies. I am sure that the moment my mother could, I was the fourth child of five. We were back at church again. I was in that nursery every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every single Wednesday night, and whenever else my family was there. I want you to understand, I never missed church. I grew up in the church. I grew up extremely involved in the church. And yet, I thought the Lord Jesus' spirit lived in the baptistry. I was sure of it when I was a little bitty girl. I can remember because I wore corrective shoes for so long, I can remember the very first set of patent leathers that I had. I remember sitting back in the pew and clicking them together like Dorothy, just like that, wishing that something would happen so the guy would just shut up. Amen? It's just so long. I remember so many times that the invitation went on and on and on and on and on because we were the same people. We'd been saved years ago. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Till till finally you're going, somebody go. Amen. (laughs) My daughter went years later. She goes, Mother, I'm walking the aisle. I went, you are not. She said, they need someone to. You know that kind of thing. I sat right there. I can remember being a child. Listen to me because some of you have felt this way and some of you don't even know this is possible. I was a young child and I still could look around me by the time I was eight or nine. Now, what is in a child's mind that can look around them and think this thought? I wish I was good like them. How can an eight or nine-year-old not be good? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's how deeply ingrained the shame was in me. I couldn't have even articulated it. I didn't even know you would call it shame. All I know is I would look at everybody else and I would think, if I could just be like them, if I could just be like them. When I began to be such a troubled teenager, and you got to understand, please, I had a heart for God. I have said this and I'll continue to say this as long as anybody will listen. Not everyone wigging out in a stronghold of sin is having a great time. 
I was not having a great time. I was sobbing myself half to death in my pillow going, God, why can't I be good? I wanted to serve. I wanted to do things at church. I wanted to be good. And I would promise him, I'm going to be from now on. Anybody else? I'm going to be from now on. I'm going to be from now on. And something else would happen. And I'd cycle back in that pit, back in that pit, back in that pit. I was so self-destructive that all the enemy would have to do was just set up just the right circumstances. And I was going to slide from gray into the black. And I did it over and over. And that was my miserable life. Only I dressed it as well as I could. Some of you know what I'm talking about. So I'm looking at this young woman thinking, since I know every inch of that church, she's sitting probably in the library, eight to ten other women at First Baptist Church of Arkadelphia, Arkansas, where my feet must have left miles and miles and miles of tread. That is where I grew up, living in complete defeat, living in hypocrisy with a broken heart. And right there in that library, they're sticking in a videotape, and I'm teaching Bible study there. I could not even hold myself together. I don't even know what I said. I'd love to be reintroduced to her so that we could try to have some kind of conversation. It moved me all weekend long. But I didn't get a chance to be alone with the Father because I had the conference going. And I needed to talk to him about it. Do any of you know what I'm talking about? I needed time with my Father all by myself. And so it came to me Monday morning. Keith was already gone, both the girls at college. Just me and the Lord. And I sat before him with my Bible open. And all I could do was sob and sob and sob and sob. And I kept pointing my heart. And I was trying to get my lips to work. But what I was saying when I was pointing to my heart, I just was saying to him, just read my heart. I can't even make the words come out of my mouth. Just read my heart. But all my lips would just keep falling open saying the same thing. Why? Why? I was such a mess. Why in the world did you bother with me? Why? I asked him that last night through the windows open here in Athens and said to him, why? Why? Later, I just grabbed the pen and put it to paper, and this is exactly what came out, and I want to share it with you to close. What kind of God are you, O Lord? Perfect judge with tongue of sword lifted high while hosts bow down, lightning flashing rainbow round. What kind of God are you, O Lord? That you would leave throne thus adored, descend to earth despised of men, rejected to redeem from sin. What kind of God are you, O Lord? Wretched men like me restored, abyss once bound by wage of death, killed by your cross, raised by your breath. What kind of God are you, O Lord, that you would do again the more, move heaven and earth my heart pursued, till you who loved I would love too? What kind of God are you? I think I know why God called me to ministry. I think I know the primary bottom line of my testimony. And I will say it, jump up and down, 
do cartwheels, ballet, or slide on the marble with my socks to get this through to anyone who will listen. If God can save me, He can save anyone. If God can pull this life out of a cycle of years, may I go as far as to say several decades of habitual sin. I was a habitual sinner. I could not stop to save my life and be so stubborn with me. He didn't just give me one chance. He didn't just give me two. He kept teaching me and walking with me till his stubborn love and his powerful word began to set me free. If he can use me, he can use you. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? You have no excuse. God has an adventure for you. A place where you have been strategically located on this planet to bring forth much fruit. What kind of God is he? A God who uses you and me. Would you pray with me? Lord, do it. How I praise you, God, that you do it. I don't know why. I never do get a clear answer from you. But you do. And Lord, I pray that you will get through to some listeners right this minute who have been hard-headed enough to think that their past has nullified their future. You are big enough. You are powerful enough. And you are amazing. Do what only you can do with your outstretched arm. Heal us and use us. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. That they might be with him and that he might send them out. Those earliest apostles had no idea that Christ's message would ever make it to the great city of Athens, let alone through a former persecutor named Saul. And yet he stood right there on Mars Hill, just over there, I want you to look at that plateau just down from the Acropolis. It overlooked the Agora or the marketplace. And in that very place, he said these words, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And that he did. The Apostle John also went places he never dreamed he'd go. But you see, that's our God, ever willing to do more than our eyes have seen, more than our ears have heard, and more than our minds have ever conceived. Let him do that for you.